0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Then Jesus and his disciples sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He, uh, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and would be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him, Not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus. Clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all of the people of the surrounding country, of the Gerasenes, asked for him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, "Return to your home, and declare how much God has done for you." And he went away. Proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him, friends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, friends. May I my welcome? My name is Matt, and I serve as uh, the pastor here. And if I haven't met you yet, I would love uh, to meet you and get to know you a little bit after the service, especially uh, out back with uh, the donuts as we celebrate Brad and Emma and their ministry to Zambia. Uh, we're continuing on in our journey through the, the Gospel of Luke, and we've been asking the overarching question, who is Jesus? If somebody somebody were to come up to you off the street and, and ask that question of you point blank, how would you respond? Each week we've been turning the the diamond, the, the facet of who uh, people respond and say Jesus is, that Jesus is more than a healer, he's more than a teacher. And we get to this weird passage that uh, that Jesus is an exorcist. He, he is someone who casts out demons. He's someone who confronts evil. And I'm not quite sure what your experience with evil spirits or the demonic world looks like. Uh, before I moved to Madison, my wife and I, we lived in the Georgetown neighborhood of Washington, D.C., and there's this famous staircase in Georgetown. If you're familiar with the movie The Exorcist, uh, there are the exorcist stairs on Prospect Street a couple blocks away from where we lived. And if you aren't familiar with the movie, it's, uh, the, it's a story about uh, a girl named Reagan who was possessed by a demon. And it's the story of how Father Maris and Father Karen seek uh, to save Reagan and even sacrifice themselves at the very end to, to liberate Reagan from, from her possession. And the story that we just read in Luke 8 is at the same time much more intense than the movie The Exorcist, but it's uh, a lot less suspense because the the movie, The Exorcist, has a runtime of about two hours. We read this story in about three minutes. And while it it took two priests two hours to to save a a young girl from a demon, Jesus cast out thousands of demons with just a word in in the span of less than three minutes. And so this story uh, is much more intense, but it's much, much less dispensable. But as we approach a passage like this in Luke eight. Our temptation to handle it is a lot like our our approach to watching movies like The Exorcist. Is to take these stories of the spectacular, of demon possession, of the miraculous, and to put them in the category of fiction, to put them in the category of of entertainment, and uh, and just uh, compartmentalize them and just carry on with our with our day. But. Can I suggest two things before we unpack this, this text a little bit more together? The first is that if you're here this morning, you're probably comfortable with the idea that God exists. You might be a believer and convinced that Jesus is real, that, that God is, is out there, and, or you might be here and you're uh, open to the idea that God exists. Well, let me suggest to you that if you believe that, that God exists, that this being of perfect goodness uh, and, and beauty, this transcendent personal being of, of goodness exists, then it should stand to reason that, that demons exist, that personal, uh, invisible beings of evil exist. It's, it's a little inconsistent to say that if spiritual beings exist, they only ever are good. If, if you posit the idea of a good spiritual being exi- existing, it makes sense that there might be evil ones that exist as well. But then secondly, uh, can we check what the British author and writer C.S. Lewis calls our chronological snobbery at the door? Chronological snobbery is this tendency where, since we live in the post enlightenment age, where uh, we think that we believe that if we lived back in the first century or any or any other period of time, we would just be we would be just as enlightened then as we are now, and and so we think that people in the first century were just this simple minded people that they attributed everything that was wrong in the world to some kind of demon under every rock, but if you've been reading through the Gospel of Luke, you'll notice that. The Jewish people, uh, the people who lived in the first century, they had categories for people. When, when we read about the, the the encounters that Jesus has, we read that Jesus encountered the sick, he encountered the, the insane, the mentally ill, and then he encountered people who were possessed by evil. Ancient people had categories, and so they knew that if you were sick, you didn't need an exorcist, you needed a doctor. And so we should... Uh, we should put ourselves in in a better state of mind as we think about how life was lived in the first century that they weren 't the simplistic people attributing everything under every rock to a demon or spiritual forces, but at the same time, first century people recognized that there were there were some things in the world that shattered categories uh, that that were so that there was evil in the world that was so deep and dark and twisted that, that only a divine encounter could could bring about restoration that only god himself intervening could save the day and so as we enter into this story of uh, of this demonized person uh, let's do so with two questions and let's ask the question of what does this encounter between jesus and this demonized person teach us about who jesus is and his mission and then secondly what should we do in response so the first question what does this encounter teach us about jesus and his mission and then secondly how should we respond so as we dig into this story, I want us to see three things that Jesus' encounter with this person teaches us about his mission, about who he is, about what he came to do. And the first thing is, is that this encounter shows us that Jesus cares for the nations. Jesus cares for the nations. The first thing that this encounter shows us is that Jesus is not just concerned about his people, about the Jewish people, about his Uh, ethnic group, but that Jesus uh, goes across to the other side of the lake, opposite Galilee, where he had been ministering ministering, to the other side, because Jesus is not just a savior of a particular people. He's a savior of all peoples. In in fact, um, this is Jesus's first international business trip that you could call. Uh, This is Jesus's first time crossing a border. And, And isn't it interesting that the first time that Jesus crosses a border, he crosses a border with his disciples, he crosses that border with his closest followers because he wants them to see and he wants us to see that Jesus is not just the savior of of their people; he's the savior of the entire world. And this reality, which will take some time to develop, it, it won't be until after Jesus's death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit coming down on the followers of Jesus and the message of the gospel going into the whole world for us to see in full. We see the seed of that global vision, that global salvation, planted here. In, in the region of the Gerasenes, that Jesus is trying to expand his disciples' vision about who he is, and about what he came to do. You see, Jesus, uh, just previously in this passage in Luke, in Luke 8, Jesus tells his disciples, let's go to the other side. And Jesus says, let's go to the other side because the nations are on the other side. Because there are people who are far from God on the other side, and Jesus goes out to them. That was true of the region of the Gerasenes and friends. That's also true of us this morning because as we consider where we sit uh, in Madison, Wisconsin in 2024, we, we recognize and acknowledge that we are on the other side, that, that North America, the United States, that, that, that Madison, Virginia was on the other side, that the good news of what God has done for us was it radiated outward from, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and it's come to the ends of the earth where we sit today. And as a church, I love that we have a heart for the nations where the ministry, uh, where, where people in our church feel called to go to the mission field, where where we see the, the university behind us as an opportunity, where the nations are coming to study, where we can invest and see the gospel go out to people all around the world in our own backyard. That, that we want to see people from every tribe and tongue and nation hear the message of salvation because good news of Jesus, it's not just good news for for a certain group of people. Uh, It's not just good good news for people of a certain race or class or ethnicity. It's good news for the world. It's good news for all people, and we get to be a part of that. And that's the first thing that, that this encounter teaches us about Jesus's mission, that Jesus cares about the nations. But not only that, this encounter between Jesus and this demonized person teaches us that not only does Jesus care about the nations, Jesus cares about the one. Jesus cares about the one Jesus is not just interested in people he's interested in persons he's interested in the one what I find fascinating about this passage is that Jesus and his followers get off the boat at the start of this passage and their only encounter uh, is with this demonized person they Jesus sends uh, the demons out of this person and then by the end of the passage you notice that they're on the boat going back home that this whole journey across the lake is just for this one person and this is completely counter to uh, to the way the world works. Imagine if you owned a business, you wanted to expand your brand into a new market. What would you do? You would try to find uh, the kings, those who have power, the stakeholders, the influencers, and you try to expand your brand into a new nation. But notice what Jesus does. He goes across. He goes across the Sea of Galilee to uh, to to this person of all people. This person who's not just on the margins. He's on the margins of the margins. He's. He's deemed as a threat to society. He's kept under constant guard and lock and key, shackled and living among the tombs. And this is the person that Jesus goes to because Jesus cares about the one. Jesus tells his followers, let's go to the other side, knowing full well that it's this person who's waiting for him on the other side. Jesus goes to the one. And and, uh, Luke spends a ton of time. He slows down the narrative to help us really get to know this person, to see the whites of his eyes, to see uh, the the contours of his condition, so that we can more fully connect with this one person and see the depths of his brokenness and bondage. We look at him and we see a man who has unparalleled strength, but without the ability to control it. Uh, We see someone whose greatest strength doubles as his greatest weakness. Maybe you know somebody like that. We see somebody who's alienated from his community. He's living among the tombs. He's isolated and alone. He's he's without any friends he, he lives among the graves and not only is he alienated from his community he's alienated within himself he's so overwhelmed by the evil spirits and, and, the, and the, the the demons possessing him that he's lost touch with his own humanity his own sense of dignity and worth and we see jesus coming for this one we see Je- jesus coming for this one and if you're here this morning and, and maybe you feel isolated Maybe you feel alienated. Maybe you feel overwhelmed because your greatest strength has actually brought you into a world of hurt where your greatest strengths are your greatest weaknesses. Notice notice that Jesus doesn't run away from from problematic people. He doesn't run away from those who are suffering. He doesn't run away from those who alone. You see Jesus going to those kinds of people. Jesus runs towards those who are alienated and alone. He sees those who are suffering, and he comes to the other side. For you, Because Jesus cares about the one. Jesus says that you're worth crossing the sea of heaven and earth to put skin on in the wonder of the incarnation. Because Jesus sees you and and he's come for you. So not only does this encounter teach us that Jesus cares for the nations, Jesus cares for the one. But I think the the obvious part is that this passage shows us that Jesus came to conquer evil. Jesus came uh, to do business with evil itself. As the Christmas carol proclaims, uh, Jesus has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Jesus told his followers, let's go over to the other side because that is where great evil is. That is where uh, some great evil resides. And so he doesn't run from trouble. He runs towards it. And Jesus asks this person what his, what his name is. But the demons interrupt that conversation and give the response. The demons say, we are legion for there are many of us. Now, there's a couple of things going on here because there are a lot of different words in the Greek language for the word many. Uh, and so, uh, but the word that's used here by, by the demons and that's recorded in the text is the word legion. It's, it's the word that is uh, the, the, same, the same word that you think of the, Rome, of, of the Roman legion, the, the military unit that struck fear. Uh, that, that was the uh, the vehicle of, of empire and dominance in the day. That, that What the demons are telling Jesus, is not just that there's a lot of us, but... There's a lot of us, and you should be afraid. There's a lot of us, and we're powerful. There's a lot of us, so don't so don't get any ideas. And uh, the, the sight of a Roman legion would have struck terror into the eyes of anyone who saw it. But we see Jesus look at this person afflicted by a legion of demons. And you notice the power that Jesus displays. Before Jesus even utters a word, the demons rush up to Jesus and immediately start negotiating terms of surrender. They say Jesus, we are powerful, but we know you're more powerful so let here, here's an alternate plan. Could you send us or don't don't send us where we where we belong where we know we're ultimately going into the abyss, but send us into this herd of pigs and, and curiously, Jesus grants their request and uh, it actually causes a bit of a, of a microeconomic disaster because in the first century, most of wealth was tied up in livestock and so uh, if you look at a herd of pigs and if you just took you know a 2,000 pigs, which was the, 2000 was the number of a Roman legion, and say 2,000 pigs run headlong into the sea, you're talking about roughly a million dollars worth of livestock, about 20 years of wages for the average laborer in this day. But Jesus throws the demons out of this person into the pigs. Financial chaos ensues, but Jesus doesn't matter because the value of a soul is worth more than the value uh, uh, of any amount of wealth in the world because Jesus has come to deal with deeper evil. And for those people who might think that this passage is uh, a message that Jesus has come to overthrow the Roman legion, that what Jesus is doing in casting out the demons and throwing them in the sea, that this is a picture of the kind of Messiah that Jesus is going to be, that he's going to step onto Roman turf and send all of the Roman legions into the sea. The fact that Jesus gets on the boat and leaves right after this encounter shows you that Jesus... Has a different mission in mind he's not an earthly uh material political savior in that sense that jesus says in in the gospel of john that my kingdom isn't of this world and so jesus gets on the boat and he leaves because the 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 evil he's come to confront is not a human government it's not rome it's it's the enemy of evil and, and sin and death itself and so how is jesus able to do that well it's these power encounters through the, the, the dismissing of demons, through the, the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, uh, the calming of, of a storm. It's through these different power encounters that are meant to put us on the track towards the right answer, but the full answer comes much later at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Because at, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we not only see the power that Jesus displays, we see the price that Jesus pays to set us free from evil. Jesus says, you're you're worth more than, uh, than a herd of pigs on a, on a hillside. He, Jesus says... That you're worth my very life. That the price that Jesus pays to set us free from the evil and the sin that afflicts us is is the cost of his own life. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we see the price that that Jesus pays to to switch places with the demonized person and to switch places with us. Because at the end of the book of Luke, Jesus will be stripped naked. Jesus will have his body cut open by whips. Jesus will be alienated from the community and forced to carry his cross out of the city. Jesus will cry out and shriek while a member of the Roman legion watches him die. And Jesus will also go out among the tombs. In fact, he'll go into the tomb. Jesus will bear in his body on the cross the full weight of of evil and all the power of hell that it can marshal against it. In order that we would be saved, in order that we would be restored, in order that we would be put into our right minds and set free from the evil that afflicts us, that we would sit at the Jesus, that sit at the feet of Jesus, and know that the powers of hell have no power against us. This story shows us in miniature what Jesus is going to do for all who look to Him in faith and trusted Him. That Jesus uh, has power over all the evil in the world. That nothing, can, that no power of evil can keep us. In its grasp, and so if that's what this story is meant to show us—that Jesus came because He cares for the nations, He cares for the one He cares about, uh, doing business and, and, and vanquishing the evil and suffering in the world—what should be our response? How, how should we respond to this kind of person? And I think we get an answer by, by looking at the story again, and, and rather than looking at Jesus and what He does, let's let's look at the different characters in the story and see how they respond. Because you notice that in the stories you read, it there's there's a lot of begging going on. Uh, the the demon the demonized person is begging Jesus. The townspeople come out and they beg Jesus. Uh, then at the end of the story, the, de- the 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 cured person begs Jesus. And so let's look at their different responses and see if it can inform our response. So how should we respond to the story? Well, I would, I would suggest don't respond like the demons. Uh, don't respond like the demons. In verse um, in verse. Uh, twenty eight the, the demons, uh the demonized person runs up to Jesus and says uh, immediately, I know who you are, you are the Son of the most high god and which is which is amazing because that 's actually a, a factually true statement. The demons say something right about Jesus, uh, but then they, um, but then they beg Jesus to be sent away. They, they see Jesus for who he truly is and they beg Jesus to be sent away and what that teaches us is that Uh, When it comes to encountering Jesus, responding to Jesus, following Jesus, uh, it it, it involves more than just knowing the right answers. That following Jesus is more than just this intellectual exercise and knowing how to respond in Sunday school when called upon. You see, the demons knew the right answer, but the response that Jesus demands is knowing more than just facts about him. It, It involves a personal encounter with him. And for us today, it involves... Uh, Responding to Jesus involves a personal encounter with this risen Jesus. You need to have that experience where you you realize what Christ did in the pages of Luke and the pages of Scripture. It's not just Jesus dealing with somebody else's problems and somebody else's evil and sin and pain. It's it's Jesus doing business with you. Jesus doing business with your sin, with your pain, with your struggle. That Jesus has, has come for you. See, following Jesus involves your mind, but it's not just your mind. And I think that's a temptation for us living in a university town where we're so prized on on knowing the right things and advancing the fields of knowledge that following Jesus is more than just an intellectual exercise. You need to encounter a person. You need to encounter all of Jesus and be transformed at every level, every part of your life with uh, by by encountering him. You see... The response to the demons is just to give the right answer and then, and then be sent away so don't respond like the demons know that, know that there's more than just knowing the right answers uh, but secondly uh, don't re- don't respond like the crowd uh, don't respond like the townspeople you see the crowd's response um, the, the herdsmen who are watching the pigs go into the city they go into the country they, they, they say all right uh, you know all school assembly out out in the graveyard and so everybody comes out and they see Jesus and they see uh, a surprising absence of pigs and they see a more surprising uh, cured uh, demoniac in front of them. And they look at they look at what they see and they look at Jesus and they beg Jesus to go away. They, they beg Jesus to go away. The, the demons beg to be sent away. They beg Jesus to go away. And, and they're filled with this great fear. Uh, and, and they ask Jesus to go away because they're afraid that Jesus is a threat to their way of life. They're they're afraid that Jesus is a threat to uh, the status quo and the way that they're going about their lives. They they see the results of Jesus power in this man's life and they want nothing to do with it because they know that if they were to experience the same power in their life, it's it's going to cause an upheaval of change in in their life. If they were going to follow Jesus, they, they know that they would have to give up their wealth. They'd have to give up their comfort and their sense of control. Uh, they recognize that their life isn 't perfect after all they 're still being oppressed by the Romans, but they would choose they, they chose in this instance to live with their functional dysfunction rather than come to Jesus and experience healing and I think that that's, that might be a place where a lot of us find ourselves today that that we want Jesus to be a partial savior uh, where uh, we want Jesus to have control over some aspects of our life, but we don 't want to give Jesus other areas of our life for fear uh, of letting go for fear of uh, coming clean of, for fear of living uh, full, in, in full light uh, of God and, and, and being seen by, by him and by others. Uh, it, it's like what the poet uh, John Milton writes about in, in his epic poem, Paradise Lost. He's writing about the devil, but, uh, but we can resonate with his experience where, where Milton writes that uh, for, for a lot of us, we'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. And, and Jesus comes and says, no, it's not better to reign in hell it's not better to to reign in hell. There, there's much more freedom to be found in in serving in heaven and following after me and trusting me not just with uh, not just with portions of your life, but with with your entire life. Because Jesus hasn't come to be a partial savior. And so, if if you find yourself this morning being piecemeal in how you follow Jesus, that you follow Jesus with your time, but not your sexuality; you follow Jesus with with your money, but not with your anger. If you follow if you follow Jesus in uh, your in your work life, but not in your family life. Jesus is saying that that's not the way to live. You're living this fragmented, uh, th- this fragmented broken life, and Jesus says, I've come to make you whole. So don't view Jesus as a partial Savior, because that's not the kind of Savior he came to be. That if, that if you hold Jesus at arm's length, you're, you're not going to experience the fullness of life that Jesus promises that you, would, that you would live. Jesus comes and he says, it's not better to reign in hell. It, it, there's, there's more perfect freedom. There's more perfect, perfect fullness and joy found in serving the king. That in following Jesus, it's not saying that I'm, I'm following Jesus at the expense of happiness. I'm not following Jesus at, at the expense of being fulfilled personally. Jesus says that, that your, your true way to happiness, your true way to fulfillment, is through following Jesus as a total savior and not a partial savior. So don't respond like the demons. Don't respond like the townspeople. Respond instead like, like this restored person respond like the restored man the demons beg jesus to be sent away the crowd beg jesus to go away but the restored man begs to be where jesus is he begs jesus to be where he is after he's restored and put into his right mind this person goes up to jesus and says let me follow you wherever you're going jesus i don't want to leave your sight i want to be with you every step of the way and curiously jesus says no Jesus says, you, you can't follow me in this way, but here's another way where you can follow me. He, here, here's, a, here's a way to, to live out your, your joy and your obedience to, to follow me. It says, go into the, go, go into the countryside. Go, go into the city. Go, go to every place where you've been excluded and pushed out and go and tell people what, what, what God has done for you. Go, go and tell people about the change and the transformation that you've experienced because you've encountered me. And... And friends, that is the response that we should embrace today, that that as people who have experienced the the saving power, the the grace and the transforming love of Jesus, we should be people who go out into the places where God has called us and to tell people about all that God has done for us. And and and, uh, and this uh, Restore person goes out with just Jesus' command, but do you know that on this side of the resurrection, on this side of Jesus' ministry, we go not just with the command of Jesus, we go with the presence of Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we go out into the world to tell people and to be a a testimony and a foretaste of the world to come, knowing that Jesus is a Savior who has done business with the darkest and deepest evils of the world, that we've experienced transformation in that kind of God and that the world can as well. And so let us be a community uh, of faith that goes out and tells people that we don't have to settle for the evil and the brokenness and the, and the lesser salvations of the world, that, that the evil of the world has been dealt with and it's being dealt with in the person of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has such a grand vision for the world, who has such a grand vision for us as individuals, and that part of your plan is the vanquishing of evil. Lord, we are afflicted in many ways by the evil and injustice in the world, uh, both in uh, the systems of power that oppress and exploit, and even in uh, the small ways where we succumb to the evil in our own lives. And Lord, we, we pray that we would fully encounter Jesus, the the conqueror, the conqueror of evil, that we would give ourselves wholly to you and be set free and see the power and see the, see the true freedom that comes with following after you. Help us, Lord, to live lives of joyful obedience, uh, that we would go out and proclaim your goodness until your return. We ask this in his name. Amen.